Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Happy Easter, Mercy Church. So good to be with you this morning. Man, as the church has said for thousands of years, Christ has risen. And that's the hope. It's the hope that we bring into today. My name's Spence. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy. We planted about five years ago with this simple hope that everybody in the Charlotte area would hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they hear it, they would take it to the far ends of the earth. Uh, that's our hope for you today is to hear. We're going to keep this thing really simple as we celebrate coming off of a year that I think we can all just acknowledge has been difficult. Man, we're going to keep this really simple. and We're going to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, Listen, my big prayer for today is um, it's a combination of renewal for you who are a Christian. You've been following Jesus for a while. I'm praying for God to renew, to stir something fresh in your heart, in your affections for him. I'm hoping that springtime uh, that we're seeing all around us is kind of like an image, a picture of what God is doing in your own heart and is going to use our time together to that end. Um, I'm praying for that awakening, that fresh faith, and you would draw close to him. If you're new to church, man, I'm praying, I'm going to give you this gospel news and give you a chance to decide on it. Um, Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to teach from the Bible for just a few minutes. I'm going to show you what God says about why the resurrection of Jesus matters for me and you. That's the announcement. Again, it's the announcement of what the Christians call the gospel, the good news. It really, the breakdown for today, the outline is, I'm going to talk about good news, bad news, and great news. And that's the gospel, all right? And I'm asking you to make a decision on it. For several weeks now, if you have been with us, we've been walking through the account from Luke 22 to Luke 24 of just the following Jesus towards his death and resurrection. We looked at why it matters, why Jesus had to die. We saw the Last Supper that it was all about his death would bring us back into fellowship with God. We saw in the argument from the greatest to the least, and this, this argument between the disciples, what we saw was, man, Jesus is going to have to save us from our pride. Our pride left up to itself. We're going to continue to be self-focused, and it's going to eat away at us. And man, Christ is here to save us from that. We saw in the Garden of Gethsemane that Christ had to die to absorb the wrath of God poured out on sin. We saw in the betrayal of Judas and Peter that Christ died to take away our shame and to restore us back to himself. We saw in the cross on Good Friday, Christ died to show the abundant grace of God towards sinners. So today, though, we arrive at the resurrection. Why he had to not just die, but why he had to rise again. I mean, the series we've titled Death and Resurrection. Without the resurrection, none of what we have talked about up to this point matters. None of it. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to say, we Christians, we are fools apart from the resurrection. So this morning, we spend our time in Luke 24, Resurrection Day. We're going to go to the empty tomb. We're going to go to where Jesus announces why the resurrection matters. And we'll see good news, bad news, 
and great news. And y'all, I know sometimes when you hear good news, bad news, somebody will come up to me and say, listen, man, I got to tell you something. It's kind of a good news, bad news situation. That's almost always just a bad news situation, right? It's like I'm trying to soften the bad news. Like the bad news is, you know, your house burned down and your dog died and your boat sank. I don't know, like all the things went wrong. You know, but the good news is, man, you don't have to worry about things anymore. You know, like that's, that's just bad news. This is truly good news that you are going to hear today in the resurrection of Jesus, all right? Uh, so we're going to do two scenes in Luke 24. There's the empty tomb, and then Jesus shows up, and he explains why the empty tomb matters so much, all right? Those are our two scenes. So verse 1 of Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to see, I'm going to add just the first half of verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, a few things to note here. There's a tomb. It's Jesus' tomb. He was crucified on Friday. They took Saturday off to rest. It was the Sabbath. Now, as soon as they could, they're coming to, to the tomb to perform a common ritual that they would use spices to care for the body of the deceased. They find the stone rolled away. I mean, there's... Nobody there. Yeah, I did that for my kids at dinner on Friday. I was like, nobody, get it? And they groaned like, ugh. If that's what you just did, that means you got that joke correctly, all right? I live for those kind of groans. All right, anyways. Um, look, they're, they're perplexed. They're thinking, what could have happened? Right? They're surprised. This is not what was supposed to happen. Right? There, there must be. They're thinking for what are the rational explanations for why the body's not here? And y'all, listen, I want to pause in this space and acknowledge that maybe you're coming into the idea of the resurrection of Jesus, having some trouble believing that it could have actually happened. All right, I acknowledge that. And there are a bunch of different theories um, that have come up throughout the years, throughout the past couple thousand years. One of them even started, uh, it's even acknowledged in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, there's the idea that maybe somebody broke in and stole the body right before this day right here. Um, the, Matthew's gospel tells us that this idea was created by the priests who were the ones that were in power. And when the Roman soldiers came and said, hey, uh, he walked out of there, uh, you know, the, the priest said, no, 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 tell them instead that somebody came and stole the body. We'll give you a bunch of money to do that. Um, the huge problem with the idea that someone came and stole the body first is that there were Roman guards guarding the tomb. That's what guards do right? And you're talking about a bunch of disciples coming and overpowering these guards and then rolling away a huge stone. First of all, the disciples aren't exactly um, soldiers, all right? We're talking about fishermen, tax collectors. I mean, these are not the guys that are going to come and mount an attack like they're secretly, they know jujitsu or something like that. No, that's not how it's going down. These guys are up hiding in a room somewhere, all right? And you got these Roman guards who, again, if they would have attacked the tomb, that would have been the perfect cover for Rome to go and raid all the disciples, kill them all right there, and this thing would have been over. All right, we'd have, we'd have known if that would have happened. So what else could have happened? Well, there's a theory that was around for a long time, has not, doesn't have as much support now, that maybe Jesus wasn't really dead when they put him in there. That's preposterous. He died a gruesome death. They stabbed him in the side to make sure he was dead. Look, they were professionals at this. They knew how to kill people. They stayed up there until they were dead. They didn't guess at this thing. And still, there was a huge stone over top of it, all right? 
I know some of you still, you think, yeah, I just can't, be- I just can't believe it. I can't believe he resurrected. It feels like a myth that they used in order to, you know, propagate an idea throughout the world. Look, all, I, all I'll say to that is that the evidence of the disciples' lives from this point on suggest otherwise. I mean, the idea that they all together, all of these claimed eyewitnesses, knowingly together agreed to lie about the resurrection. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about people that like just believe something that isn't true. I'm saying these guys got together and agreed to lie about the resurrection. I don't think that fits the rest of their lives because the rest of their lives were very difficult and most of them were killed for believing this. All right, they were ostracized and killed for believing this lie. I mean, you think about our author, Luke. He's a doctor, like a physician, what you doctors, what you physicians call real doctors, all right? Like he's a physician, he's a rational, logical guy. He's not going to his death for a lie. All of these guys, again, dying for saying that Jesus is alive. I mean, let's just, between us, how would you respond? You know, you and a couple of buddies are lined up and the first one, you know, is asked, do you believe Jesus rose from the grave? And y'all know that it's a lie. And he says, yes. And then boom, they kill him. Next one comes here. Do you believe Jesus rose from the grave? Did it really happen? Now, again, y'all have already agreed to say it, even though you know it's a lie. And he kind of hesitates. He goes, yes. If it gets to me, nope. It's over right there. Like, nope, this got out of hand. We lied. I'm out. I'm not going to die for something I know to be a lie. Listen, it says all of them saw him. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people saw Jesus. And when Paul says that, this is what's crazy to me. When Paul says that, he's actually quoting a song that early Christians had already started um, singing about the resurrection. You know, like Christ died for our sins and was buried and then he rose again and 500 saw him. I don't know how the song went, y'all. It's probably more better in the Greek than in the English. I'm sure that's the only problem there. But look, the fact that they were singing about it shows you the belief that he physically rose from the dead was a commonly held belief among his very first followers, not some idea that came about later. We're talking about a historical, real, physical resurrection, a dead man coming back to life. All right, that's what happened. In fact, the late, um, there's a, a professor of modern history at Oxford. His name is Tom Arnold. Not the one you're thinking of, okay? The professor of modern history at Oxford University. Um, he authored this widely acclaimed three-volume history of Rome that said, here's what he said. The evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has been shown to be satisfactory according to the standards of any historian. It holds up according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as any judge reviewing the most important case. I myself have done this many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. Throughout my life, I've made a career of studying the histories of times and events, examining and weighing the evidence for what was written about each of them. And I know of no other one fact in history which is proved by better and fuller evidence than this one. Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. Y'all, the question needs to shift from, did it happen to, it happened, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with this? Luke goes on and says, suddenly two men, into verse 4, stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. 
mean, these are angels. You think warriors of light. When they show up, they have to tell people to fear not. And then they ask a question, and it's this question that I want to um, I want to let sit for a second in your heart. I want to explain it. They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Ask the men. He is not here. He has risen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? It's a very simple question, but also very profound. Like on the surface, you know, the, of course, the answer to their question, while they're asking, Jesus is alive. Why are you looking for Jesus in a tomb? He's not in a tomb. This is where dead people go. He's not there. He's risen. But I want you to hear this angel asking you and I the same question. Have you noticed how we keep going back to things that will only bring us death and we're trying to get life out of them? Like we keep going back to tombs to find life. Can you imagine these women if they came back an hour later or maybe a day later or maybe every day for the next 20 years still looking for life in a tomb? You'd think they were insane. And yet that's us. We keep going to things over and over that we hope will give us life, but they are tombs that hold nothing but death. There's a reason things like the pornography industry exists and flourishes off of trafficking children. It's because people will go to that tomb over and over hoping to feel alive. There's a reason hate crime and bullying will always be around. The evil rush of overpowering someone who's different and weaker than us, it's a tomb that people are trying to find life in. Think about gossip. Well, gossip's a tomb. It's, I'm going to tear that person down in order to build myself up. There's no life in it, but we keep going back to it. Why are we looking for the living among the dead? You fill in the blank. What's your tomb? Money, relationships, work, alcohol. What do you keep running to? What do you keep escaping to numb reality? You may not have even realized and been able to put this label on it until now, but it is a tomb. There's no life for you there. And the very shrewd lie we believe is that even though all I found last time was death, I'm going to go back again. Maybe there'll be life this time. Why are we looking for the living among the dead? He goes on and says, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, it's necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And then they remembered his words. The angel reminds them of the very message that Jesus had already preached. It's necessary. He had to die. So I've been majoring on this throughout this series. We said at the beginning, Jesus is the one who said he had to die. Everything that happened in the life and death of Jesus and in this resurrection, God was fully in control of. Jesus told him, this is how it's going to happen. And it happened just like he said. Y'all, this is true to this very moment. God is fully in control of every single small, minute detail that got you to the spot where you're listening to this message right now, every single minute detail of your life. He is in control. I think of the, the sun came up this morning, and I saw it just kind of 
peering through the blinds in my house. And you know how you have that when you see the sun coming in and you see these little dust motes floating? I don't know, I think that's what they're called, kind of floating around. And you're like, I did not know those exist because I couldn't see them because we can't necessarily see everything that is real with the eye, right? And so we see this thing floating around and I'm like, I didn't know those were there. Is my house dirty? What I know is that God is fully in control of every single one of those little dust motes, right? Inside, outside, he's in control of the, well, maybe the pollen is the devil's, but everything else, he's in, <laughs> that's junk's the worst. But you know what I'm saying? Like he's in control of everything. He's in control of the relationships in your life that are maybe feeling like they're overwhelming you right now. He's in control of the situations, the circumstances, all of it. And he is full of grace. That's our God, fully in control, full of grace. And the scene is telling you God planned for Jesus to die. Ephesians 1 is going to tell us that before the foundations of the world, God had already appointed that we would be in Christ. He planned for this. And God planned for Jesus to break free from death, to rise again, and that's what we celebrate on Easter. Let's go to our second scene. I'm going to go all the way to verse 36. The disciples are at dinner now. Um, between here and there, he has appeared to a couple of them on a road and had a Bible study with them. And then he shows up. Uh, verse 36, I'm going to read you to verse 41. As they were saying these things, they were telling about how he saw him on the road. He himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. <laughs> But they were startled and terrified, of course they were, and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? What a good question to maybe us followers of Christ. That's why I hope that today is about renewal for you and rejoicing for you. Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while, they were, but while they still were amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, hang on a second, this is a great picture of what happens when you become a follower of Christ. You are amazed and in a little bit of disbelief because of your joy. All right, I told you today's about joy, about renewal. These followers went from mourning their murdered Savior to having dinner with him. Jesus coming back to life. You see what it's doing? It's bringing them new life too. And joy. That's what characterized the early church. It's what comes to characterize all believers. Joy. And I want that for you. Fullness of joy. Listen, what Christ promises us is that the Spirit of God will abide in us when we receive his salvation for our sins. We are reconciled back to God, which means God's Spirit. One of the promises is that God's Spirit lives in us. And that's what makes verses like Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. That's what makes it light up for Christians. Because we have his presence with us. We have fullness of joy with us. And that's your right hand or pleasures forevermore. That's a promise. That Christ in his resurrection won for us. Y'all, hanging around empty tombs leads to empty lives. But walking with the risen Jesus will bring you fullness of joy. I promise you, my life is not missing out because I chose Jesus. I don't envy the world of sin that God saved me from. I am, though, tempted to it sometimes. Often, often I find myself wandering back 
to a tomb that I know is empty, looking for life. You know, I'm no, like, perfect example or anything, but I'm telling you, when I go there, find death again, man, the power of the gospel is that I am able to turn and find forgiveness for my sin and come back and experience fullness of joy in Christ again. Fullness of joy. I want that for you today. That's available for you today. You've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but you've been spending a lot of time in tombs lately. Man, fullness of joy is available to you as you repent and turn back to Christ. So Jesus asked them, into verse 41. Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. That's him saying, I'm not a ghost. It really is me. Verse 44, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And look what he does. This is so great. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Church, the resurrected Jesus keeps going back to the Bible to teach these disciples and to explain what his resurrection is all about. The angels at the tomb were like, hey, he did just like he told you when he was telling you about the Bible earlier. When he's on the way to this scene and he shows up on the road to Emmaus, what he, what he does, before he reveals himself, he opens the scriptures and says, don't you understand this is the Christ, and he explains through the scriptures. And here he is at dinner saying, look at the book. It's all in there. If you knew my word, then my resurrection wouldn't be a surprise to you. It'd be an expected victory. He keeps his promises. And the resurrection is this big stamp of proof that God keeps his promises to you. So his promise that in Christ your sin is removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And it's guaranteed by the resurrection. It's never changing. Verse 46. He also said to them, this is what is written. Again, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. That's the Holy Spirit who's going to come in Acts chapter 2. And now comes as soon as we profess faith in Christ. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. The meaning of the resurrection, the thing that will be proclaimed according to Jesus right here, is repentance for forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. That's the hope. That's the hope of the resurrection. Repentance for forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus for all nations, for all peoples. So let me share the good news, bad news, and great news of the gospel that Jesus sums up in repentance for forgiveness of sins. I want to give you one thing he said earlier in his ministry that articulates it. It's perhaps one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known Bible verse in Scripture, and I want to put it in front of you. Maybe its familiarity will help you, but I want you to see the, the beauty and power of this gospel. It's John 3, 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Good news. I'm going to keep this scripture in front of you. Good news, bad news, great news. The good news, God loved the world. God loves you. 
God created you and he loves you. That's the good news. Really good news. We were created to know and love God. That's why we go searching for life. That's why we go searching for life in empty tombs. Because we were created to find life, to find contentment, happiness. When I talk about life, I'm talking about contentment, happiness, purpose, peace. We were created to find that in something outside of ourselves. Otherwise, we wouldn't spend all of our time looking for it. You were created, Genesis 1 says, in the image of God. And this is why true Christianity is so compassionate when it's at its best. Why we're so insistent that all people from the very moment that life begins until it ends, all people deserve to be treated with the utmost dignity. It's because they're created in the image of God. You're created by God and he created you to experience. You are created to experience fullness of life. It's in him. God loved the world in this way. Where you see God loved the world, yes, there's a corporate nature to the world, but there's also an individual aspect to that. He loved you. He loves you. And I know for some, a big hurdle is whether or not you can believe you still qualify to be loved. Maybe it's shame, despair, I don't know. You do still qualify for the love of God. The answer from scripture, the answer from the cross, the answer from the empty tomb is a resounding yes. You can still have God's love. You know, you look back through the history of the scriptures Jesus keeps referencing and the people that were, that God used to bring about his plan of redemption were some messed up people. They were adulterers and murderers, people that, oppressors. I mean, you think of the apostle Paul killing systematically trying to kill Christians. Church history is filled with people that did not deserve God's love, but he gave it to them anyways. That's our God. And when they encounter his love, they're forever changed by it. Forever. He loves you. He knows your name. He knows every hair on your head. He knows what you're going through down in your heart. And he loves you. But here's the bad news. We each sinned rejecting God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. There is a danger of us perishing. There's a reason Jesus is called the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. It's because we're in danger of perishing. And the thing that puts us in danger of perishing is our sin. Jesus said it, right? That's what he said. The reason he did everything he did is so that repentance of forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. You and I, each of us, have sinned against God. When we seek the living among the dead, when we search for life and anything apart from God, that's what the Bible calls sin. Anytime we choose our ways over God's ways, that's what the Bible calls sin. It literally means to miss the mark. And I think anyone who isn't stuck under a rock will admit that there's some things that just seem wrong with the world. That the world is messed up. We call it, as Christians, we call that the brokenness of the world. Not everything is as it should be. The Bible has an explanation for that. It's sin. It corrupts the world. Sickness and death and injustice and betrayal and hurt. None of that are supposed to be in this world. There's some things that we feel universally just should not be. And the Christian message is saying, yes, you're right in that feeling. That's the effect of sin. We just go further to say the same thing that causes people to do terrible things out there that thing lives in me and you too. And at the core, we care about self above all. And there's something about us that likes 
even likes it when we see others maybe suffer, but not us. There's a wickedness that's inside of us. That's why, y'all, that's why reality TV has existed for so long, right? You put enough people into a tense situation where only one of them can win, and what's going to happen? They're going to cheat, steal, lie, betray, and destroy one another, all to get a rose or, or whatever. They're going to do that. But here's, the, here's the, the worst part is we like watching it. There is something off in all of us. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. That's what causes us to perish. By perish, Jesus means spend eternity apart from God. There's no sin in God. God's holy and perfect sin is a rejection of God. The consequence of sin is death here on earth and eternal. We get basically what we want, eternity apart from God. Here on earth, that death is it's in the tombs. Those things that keep coming up empty, looking for the living among the dead. Eternity, it's separation from God and what scripture calls hell, a place of perishing, eternal perishing and torment apart from God. That's what our sin earns us. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus, <laughs> he didn't come to preach eternal death. He came so that we might be saved from that and have life. Have life. He said, so they may not perish, but have everlasting life. He said, we are to preach about repentance from sin that brings about forgiveness for our sin. So let me conclude this sermon telling you about the great news. The great news is that Christ offers forgiveness of sins and fullness of joy. The reason he came into the world is so that if you believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. The offer of the gospel is forgiveness of sins. Your sin deserved death, but he loved you so much, he couldn't let you die in your sin. You see, the cross is where the justice of God, he is eternally just in his character, so sin must be paid for. The justice of God and the mercy of God, he loves you so much, it meets in the cross of Christ. He made a way, and that way was sending Jesus to die for your sin, and you can receive it. You can receive his death on your behalf. You can be saved from your sins today. Scripture even says you can be healed from your sin today. No more guilt, no more shame. I'm talking about salvation and freedom from sin, new life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, and it can start today. The resurrection gives hope and new purpose to every area of your life. I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead, guilt does not have the last word on our lives. Yes, we stand condemned because of our sin, but we have been forgiven. Our sin debt is canceled. Romans 8.1 tells me there is therefore no condemnation. You who are struggling in the guilt of your sin and still having it hit you over and over and over again, come to Christ. Come to Christ because there's no condemnation in him. Put it on to Christ and receive his forgiveness. The empty tomb means injustice doesn't have to have the last word. Yes, we live in a world where unfair things happen, but God, he promises in his scriptures he's going to overturn all of that and bring us into a world one day where all the wrongs are made right for eternity. The empty tomb means addictions don't have to have the last word. In the resurrection, God has released a power that really can break every chain. It really can. And it can renew. I know some of y'all have gone through some uh, pain from, maybe it's from addiction. 
I mean, statistics say that addiction has been on the rise so much in the past year. You can experience renewal. Christ really can not just set you free from it, but bring healing and restoration. If you really did get out of the grave. And if you did, pain doesn't have to have the last word. Like I said, we've dealt with real pain this year, but the resurrection shows you pain's not forever. It's not forever. It reveals a day coming with no more crying and tears. The resurrection means despair doesn't have to last forever. It doesn't have to have the last word. As long as he's alive, there's hope for you, no matter how dark the night may seem. As the picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because he is alive, he can bring the dawn of resurrection into your life. I think about the disciples that were waiting in the that time between his death and resurrection and how all of that worry, maybe that they were sleeping with that confusion, that despair, all of that goes away at the dawning of the resurrection. Then go away for you. The empty tomb means death doesn't have its last word. It does not have the last word over us. All those who die in Christ are raised with him into eternity with him. Life forever. Um, my grandfather passed away right around the same time that Billy Graham did. I was, um, I think Billy Graham passed away just like a couple of months before my grandfather. Um, and my grandfather used to say the same thing to me that he had heard Billy Graham say in a sermon uh, probably 30 years ago or, or more. He said one day, uh, Billy Graham used to say this, he said, one day you're going to hear that Billy Graham is dead. Do not believe it for a second. I will be more alive at that moment than ever before. I will simply have changed addresses. And my grandfather used to say that to me, and I remember saying that at his funeral when I preached his funeral, um, offering the hope of the resurrection to anybody that will receive it. Death does not have the last word over us because of the resurrection. You can have eternal life. should not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. So what are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus? It's news to believe or not believe. The disciples did not have this all figured out. You see that in the book of Acts. They're still trying to figure it out, but they trusted Jesus and then worked through it. There are those in the resurrection account who refused, who refused to receive forgiveness, refused to receive the joy of the gospel. There are those, as you read the book of Acts, that hear it but refuse to receive it. They had knowledge of the risen Jesus, didn't really debate that, but refused to receive what it meant for them because they refused to surrender to him, for him to be in charge of their lives. So what will you do? Will you continue to reject him or will you receive him today? Those are your only two options and you got to make a decision. Reject him, I don't believe it, I refuse it, or man, I receive it. I know some of you are curious, you need to Continue thinking through it. And you need to come back the next three weeks. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, just talking through uh, the Christian life. But others of you are ready to believe right now. So I'm going to call you to believe and then to make that public. You need to let somebody know. Even if it's just the person that invited you to watch this service, you need to let them know now that you're choosing to believe it. You need to make it, make it public. Listen, let me give you that chance chance now to believe that. He, the good news, he loves you. The bad news, you sinned against him, rejected him. But the great news is you can receive forgiveness from your sin. 
and everlasting life. Let me, if you will, I want you to kind of bow your head and even in a posture of prayer. And you can use the words that I'm going to pray. Pray this prayer to receive it. Maybe, it's a, maybe you're a Christian that just needs to be renewed by the hope of the gospel. We say all the time, the gospel is not the front door to the Christian house. It's the whole house. So the whole New Testament, every command is motivated by the great love of Christ seen in the cross and resurrection. Maybe you just need to return to your first love. And if you've never received salvation, forgiveness of sin, you can pray this simple prayer with your, with your head bowed and your, your eyes closed. It's, it's like a posture, right? A posture of surrender to God. And you can pray, God, I know I am a sinner. I believe the good news you created me. I believe the bad news I rejected you. I believe the great news that Christ died for my sin and I can have forgiveness and new life through him because I believe he rose again. I believe it. I receive that forgiveness and that new life. And you tell him, thank you, God, for saving me. I want you to ask him for one more thing while you're praying. I want you to ask him for the strength to tell somebody else. Maybe it's the, the friend you're with, the person you're with. Maybe it's the person that sent this to you. But I want you to ask him for strength, for courage. The enemy would want you to keep this hidden. Jesus didn't die privately. He died publicly for your sins. And your response is to publicly profess, join him. So you just pray, though, like, this isn't going to be in your strength. This is going to be in God's strength. God, give me strength to celebrate the new life you've given me. God, thank you for the work you're doing. For those that are believing for the first time, those that are renewing their faith, that you're restoring their hearts back to you, thank you. Thank you for the resurrection and the promise and the, the hope of new life and newness of life and fullness of joy. Eternity with you. Thank you for the resurrection. We celebrate the risen King Jesus today. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Amen.